0: and welcome to another episode of Over My Dead Pod. This is your host for today, Kate Carter, and I'm joined by my co-hosts.
1: I'm Kylie Colwell. And I'm Holly Spear.
0: And we're going to go ahead and jump right into this week's episode. So ladies, let's start on September 29th, 1978. Okay. A man named Lawrence Singleton, who was a merchant mariner, it's another branch of military for people who don't know. You know, you've got the Army, Air Force, Coast Guard, Navy, and then you have a separate section that's called a merchant mariner and they're seamen. So Lawrence Singleton on September 29th, 1978, picked up a 15 year old hitchhiker named Mary Vincent in Berkeley, California. Mary had run away from her home in Las Vegas. Um, At the time, her parents were getting a divorce and their situation had become a little bit messy and she had friends and relatives in the Bay Area of California. So Mary made her way up there, but she ended up pretty much getting homesick right away. At the time, she had a boyfriend who was treating her really badly. So she left him and then decided to run away and hitchhike back home. So she's in Berkeley hitchhiking and a van pulls up. Now there's a whole line of people hitchhiking in this area. And there's two people in particular behind Mary, the guy driving the van says to Mary that he only has room for one person and that's Mary. Well, the two hitchhikers that were behind her say, don't get in the van because they can clearly see that there's enough room to fit all of them. There was plenty of room, but at this moment, Mary was so tired and just wanted to get home. So she didn't think much about what the old man was saying at the time. So Mary gets into the van. She tells the driver that she's trying to get back to Las Vegas. And the man tells her he's heading to Reno, but can drop her off in Los Angeles, which right there doesn't make any sense. Mary settles in, in the van. And at some point in the drive, she falls asleep. When she wakes up, Mary notices that they're driving East and not South. When she finally sees a sign, she knows that they're somewhere out in Patterson, which is in the Modesto area of California, and that's the completely opposite direction from LA, Reno, or Vegas. Uh, This is more Central Valley, it's very rural, and lots of land. So at this point, Mary wakes up, she's freaked out, and she confronts the man driving the van. At this point, the man apologizes, and he keeps repeating to Mary, i'm an honest man i've made an honest mistake so the man turns the car around to head in the opposite direction but he states that he needs to pull over and use the bathroom there's red flags all over this story i'm just gonna say that i don't need to say it every time there's a red flag but there's red flags all over
1: but he's an honest man
0: he's an honest (laughs) man and it's honest mistake going the wrong direction so At this point, it's nighttime, okay, and he pulls over to use the bathroom. And at some point, Mary looks down while the driver is outside, and she sees that her shoe's untied. And in this moment, Mary thinks to herself that if for some reason she needs to run, she can beat that old man, but not if her shoe's tied and she trips. So Mary gets out of the van, bends over to tie her shoe, and at this moment, she completely blacks out. She had been hit in the back of the head with a sledgehammer mary wakes up and is tied in the back of the van that she was just riding in but this time she's naked and bleeding at this point the man starts to rape her so this man continues to rape her the entire night into the morning and mary the entire time is begging to be set free sometime in the morning when the man is finally finished. He pulls Mary out of the van, unties her, and says, you want to be set free? I'll set you free. He picks up a hatchet from the back of the van, and he cuts off Mary's left arm. Mary is screaming, freaking out, and going crazy. All at the same time, she's holding the man with her right arm, trying to prevent any action from happening. Um, At some point, when she holds the man, the man takes the hatchet and chops off her right arm at some point at some point during this mary falls backwards and that's when she realizes that both of her arms have now been chopped off she's in total shock she's losing blood and she sees the man start to shake that's when she notices that her right arm is still holding on to the man because remember, she was gripped onto him when he chopped it off. So it was still, the arm and the hand was still holding on to the man. Mm. So he's trying to shake it off and get the hand to release its grip. Eventually, Mary passes out. And the man drags her body over a railing on the side of the highway and throws her body off of a 30-foot cliff. On the way down, Mary breaks four ribs, many other bones and sees that the man drives away. So now Mary is down in this ravine and she's laying there losing blood like crazy. She's got all of these injuries. Both of her arms are completely chopped off, but Mary had a voice on her head telling her not to fall asleep because she needed to get back up so that this man could be caught. So now at this point, down in the ravine, Mary digs her now stump arms into the ground where she's laying, and she's able to make these mud packs on her arms so that she'll stop losing blood. Which, by the way, is kind of crazy, because if you're ever in this scenario, that's not something you would probably think about, is to making mud packs to put in your arm hole to make sure that you stop bleeding. So that's crazy. Um, No, I would never be that smart. But she's able to do so, and she stops losing as much blood as she was before. And that's when Mary starts to crawl. Now, remember, she's about 30 feet down, needing to get to the top, but she has no arms. Now, by the time Mary gets to the top of the road, it's nighttime. She spent a whole day crawling up the 30-foot ravine. She's at the top of the road, and then she starts to walk. She's naked, covered in blood, missing two arms, and is full of injuries, including the sledgehammer to the back of the head mary ends up walking for three miles and the first car that approached her was two men in a convertible and as soon as they saw her they sped away now remember she's in a very rural area so there's no street lights no houses and she was practically walking in the light of the moon to find her way mary keeps walking and a couple who was on their honeymoon and took the wrong exit driving around trying to figure out how to get back on the highway, see Mary. These two beautiful, wonderful humans, who we don't have the names of, thank you to wherever you are, stop and grab her. They put her in the back of their truck, and they told her they're going to go get help. But at this point, the truck is speeding to the nearest payphone. They call 911, and Mary ends up getting airlifted to the closest hospital. She's lost too much blood at this point for them to wait for EMS. So Mary ended up losing over half of the blood in her body. And from the hospital bed, Mary is able to give such a good description of the man that raped and attacked her that a next door neighbor of this man recognizes the drawing. And though she was friends with her neighbor at the time, she calls the police to turn him in because it's a clear, perfect drawing. This man is 51-year-old Lawrence Singleton. The police arrested Lawrence nine days later, and when he was questioned, Lawrence told the police that Mary was a $10 whore and that he was passed out drunk in his friend's car, so his other friend, Larry, must have been the one who attacked her. Lawrence also stated that there were two other hookers in the van at that time, but Mary eventually recovers from her wounds and is able to testify in court against Lawrence. When Mary walks out of the courtroom after testifying, Lawrence says to her, if this is the last thing I do, I'll finish the job. In March of 1979, a San Diego jury convicts Lawrence Singleton of kidnapping, mayhem, attempted murder, rape, sodomy, and forced oral copulation. And they give him a maximum sentence of 14 years. So the judge who had to pass the sentence at the time stated, if I had the power, I would have sentenced him to prison for the rest of his life. Along with the particularly gruesome scene, this case became very notorious because Lawrence was paroled after serving only eight years in prison. Fast forward to 1983, the government passed a work incentive law so that they could reduce prison overcrowding. And in this law, it means that every day a prisoner is in prison and they work, they could have a day off their sentence. They announced that Lawrence's release date would occur on April 28th, eight years and four months after he was charged and convicted of his crimes against Mary Vincent. They try to parole Lawrence to Antidote, California, and the mayor protests the Department of Corrections. And so after seeing the public outcry, from the Department of Corrections, they agreed to not release him there. So they try to release him somewhere else. Now, the second time, they try to release him to relatives in Tampa, Florida. But of course, the people in Tampa rise up against this and the Tampa courts reject the release. So now Lawrence can't go back to Tampa as well. In Tampa, there's a chapter called the Guardian Angels and they really rose up and fought against allowing Lawrence to be released in their town for everyone who doesn't know who the guardian angels are in the 80s when crime was consistent and crazy it was the end of the recession the guardian angels were this group of vigilantes who wanted to make their streets clean again so these gas wore shirts that said guardian angels they wore red berets they all knew karate and taekwondo and they were all these big muscled up dudes who rode the subway at night basically they were their own gang but a positive gang to like get crime off the street. So every city started popping up with their own group of chapters of the guardian angels. So now a third time they try to release Lawrence in Martinez, California, but the board of supervisors and four council members win a temporary restraining order from a court judge barring the department of corrections to release Lawrence anywhere in their county. So now a fourth time they try to release Lawrence and this time in San Francisco. The police chief there is told that they're bringing in Lawrence to San Fran for a few weeks and San Francisco wins an order barring Lawrence from San Francisco. So then a fifth place, they try to take Lawrence to Redwood City, but reporters find out that he's in a hotel there about to be released. Protesters surround the hotel and the Department of Corrections had to pull Lawrence out of his hotel in a full suit to get him away from the protesters. You know, he could have just let the protesters have him, but it's fine. So now, hmm, what am I on? Five, six? They try to place him at El Cerrito, which is not the same counties as before. But once again, the officials find out in El Cerrito, protests begin, and it doesn't happen. So now we're on a sixth try, and this time it's in Richmond. The mayor finds out. They don't allow it. So... I think we're now at a seventh place, Rodeo, California. This doesn't happen in normal cases, okay? When you release someone, it's very rare that a, an entire city will rebel against that. But people were pitched, you know, for his eight years that he spent in prison of a horrible act that he did. So anyways, they try to bring him to Rodeo, California. People find out, a mob shows up, and they have to pull him out in a bulletproof vest. Again, he's escorted away. So this time, they move him to Concord. Another mob happens. It just continues. I mean, there's so many releases that were supposed to happen, and they don't happen because of mobs. So finally, the governor of California says to put a trailer on the grounds of San Quentin, and that Lawrence can live there until his parole is over, because they can't release him anywhere else. So that's what Lawrence has to do. He has to live on the grounds of San Quentin for the next year during his parole. But after his parole is up, he moves to, where else, Florida. And when he gets there, the people in the town protest. A car dealer even offered Lawrence $5,000 to leave the state. And a homemade bomb was detonated near Lawrence's house where he was living. In 1997, A neighbor calls the police after seeing Lawrence Singleton attacking a woman in his home, and when the police arrive, they find the body of a 31 year old. This 31 year old is Roxanne Haynes. She's a mother of three, and she was stabbed 12 times in the chest and neck, and when Lawrence answered his door, his shirt was open and he had blood all over his chest. So Mary Vincent, our original victim, goes to Tampa to appear at Lawrence's second sentencing. She tells her entire story, tells about the attack on her and how her life had completely changed because of him. The jury only deliberated for less than an hour and they found that Lawrence Singleton was sentenced to death. Unfortunately, Lawrence died of cancer in the hospital. He was 74 years old. But until the day that he died, he still denied having anything to do with the Mary Vincent attack. He never took responsibility of what happened to her, but Lawrence did say he was sorry about the death in this case when speaking about Roxanne Haynes, the mom. To wrap it up, Mary Vincent did win a $2.6 million settlement against Lawrence, but unfortunately was never able to collect a single penny because Lawrence didn't work and had $12 in his bank account at the time he went to prison. She did end up moving on and getting married. She moved to Orange County, had two sons, and she ended up starting the Mary Vincent Foundation to help victims of traumatic crimes, which still exists to this day. And that's the survival story of Mary Vincent. But ladies and gentlemen, you didn't think I was done because I have a second story for you guys today. We're doing a two-parter, so strap parter This is the story of survivor Ellen Halbert. This story takes place outside of Austin, Texas in an affluent area in the hills of 1986, so we're in the 80s. Ellen is in her 40s and she's a wife and a mother. One morning in September, Ellen is in her house doing her normal morning routine, her kids at school, and her husband is out golfing for the day. So Ellen eventually decides to go upstairs and take a shower to start her day. After her shower, Ellen grabs a towel, wraps it around herself, and walks into her bedroom to grab a robe. When Ellen walks into her bedroom, she notices something in the corner of her room. It was a five foot 11 man standing, holding the largest knife that Ellen had ever seen above his head. And the best part, he was dressed head to toe in a ninja outfit. Ellen recalls that she laughed out loud when she saw the man because she wasn't sure what was happening or if it was a joke. At this moment, the man screamed for Ellen to get on the floor as he comes at her and they began to fight. He pushes her into the bedroom, backhands her, and knocks her to the ground. Now, when Ellen tries to get up, he continues to backhand her and she just keeps falling down. Eventually, she falls on the corner of her bed and at this point, the man walks over and his ninja suit i'm sorry i I can't help but laugh sometimes when i say ninja suit so it's got to be terrifying though because i would also laugh and then i'd be screaming you know so when ellen tries to get up he does it again and she falls back on the corner of the bed at this point the man walks over and drags the knife across her feet and he states staring her straight in the eyes i just wanted you to know that my knives are sharper than yours He tells Ellen to look down and close her eyes and then he takes off his ninja mask and wraps it around her head as a blindfold. He then states, it's a shame you can't see me. I'm half white, half black, and I'm a beautiful man. Okay. (laughs) Thank you for the description. The man asks how much money Ellen has and Ellen offers to drive him to the bank or to write a check, anything to get him out of the house. And he tells her, well, you're gonna have a very bad day. He holds the knife to her throat, then binds her hands and ankles behind her back. The man dressed in the ninja suit begins to explain to Ellen that he's been hiding in her attic for two days and that he's there to rape her. She begs for his mercy, but he continues to state that it doesn't matter because no one's gonna be able to catch him. At this point, the man rapes Ellen and then eventually goes to take a shower. When the man gets out of the shower, he puts his ninja suit back on takes off her blindfold, unties Ellen, and then shows her a check that he wrote out for himself. It was in the amount of $600 and okay. tells Ellen to write his name on the check. His name was Troy Eugene Wigley. He then says to lay on the floor in the bathroom in a fetal position. And it was at that moment that Ellen recalls the feeling that her head was exploding, which we all know what that means. What was happening is that the man had hit Ellen in the back of the head with a hammer. Ellen didn't know at the time because of adrenaline. Then he proceeds to stab her in the chest. Then he hits her again with the hammer, stabs her two more times. And then he tries to stab her in the skull, but the knife wouldn't go in. So what did he do? He decides to hammer the knife into Ellen's skull. The man tries to pull the knife out and it wouldn't come out, So eventually, he stands on her head to pull the knife out. Ellen at this point is going in and out of consciousness and doesn't know where the man went. She looks in the bathroom and he's standing there without the ninja suit on and he screams for her to put her head back down so she was able to see him. So Ellen stops moving at this point. She's freezing cold, she's lost a lot of blood, but at some point the man pulls off her wedding rings and takes off so still alive ellen pulls herself out of the bathroom goes into the bedroom and throws herself down a flight of stairs to get to the phone that's in the living room downstairs but instead of calling police ellen called her parents the next time that she wakes up she hears her father screaming he had come in with the emts the medics loaded her up and she can hear them talking about how she was most likely not going to make it Now, Ellen states this was the time she decided she wasn't gonna die. By the time she gets to the hospital, she has multiple stab wounds and needs over 600 stitches. In the end, we find out that this man had stabbed her over 40 times, not to mention the bludgeoning. Troy Eugene Wigley was arrested at the bank the same day trying to cash Ellen's check when the police arrived. He was only 18 years old at the time. Troy was charged and convicted of aggravated robbery. But fortunately, he was sentenced to life in prison. Now, we don't know why he wasn't charged to attempted murder or anything like that. It could have just been based off of evidence. We don't know why, but the good part is is his sentencing. Did he like plead guilty for that? I will say this was a very hard case. I could not find any court documents, so I'm strictly going off of my sources that I normally do which we will put in our website. Now, Ellen somehow makes a full recovery. She ended up having to have multiple surgeries and she got multiple mental illnesses as well as PTSD. And sadly, her husband ends up divorcing her and takes the kid. Now, Ellen was determined to come out stronger on the other side. And she realizes because she is still able to walk, talk, read, write, speak, that she can talk for all victims and victims' rights and what victims have to go through after the attacks. In 1991, Ellen is appointed by the governor to sit on the bar for criminal justice, which she did for six years. In 1996, both the Texas Corrections Association and the Texas Crime Victim Clearinghouse established awards in Ellen's name to recognize her work on behalf of crime victims. Now, right before 2000, Ellen was able to get a 500-bed female substance abuse treatment unit named after her. So if you ever go look up her name, you'll see that she's very involved in the criminal justice system now, and she has many things named after her. She ended up winning a National Crime Victim Award, which is the highest award that victims can get in the United States. She was named one of Texas's Women of the Century and in 2001, she was the mediator for a documentary called Meeting with a Killer, One Family's Journey. And that ended up getting nominated for Emmy. So she, she did a lot. And currently, Ellen is the director of the Victim Witness Division at the District Attorney's Office in Travis County, Texas. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the survival story of Ellen Halbert.
1: Wow. Badass women. So, how'd yeah. you guys
0: like? Uh, I did a little two stories for you today, and I must say, I did two stories that are way out of my genre. Um, I survive stories that are not really my thing. It actually makes me very anxious. Hearing stories, knowing that they're still alive, you know, you f- I feel like you feel it more because they're still alive and breathing. But I thought I would throw it throw it out for you guys today and. Mary Vincent, I will say the first case, is a very big case. So, had you guys ever heard of Mary Vincent's?
1: Mm-hmm. I haven't.
0: I was thinking maybe like, Kylie had, but
1: you I mean, would I you would vaguely know. remember, you know, someone losing both of their arms, but I didn't yeah. I didn't remember any she details. She was 15.
0: It and had... crawled her nubs up over me. I mean, just an amazing... Oh, now, wow. I will say for everybody, including you guys too, if you are interested in the Mary Vincent story, there are documentaries out now. And I believe there's one where Mary tells her it, it's all her. Also does have an I Survive episode and so does Ellen Halbert. So wow. those were two really good ones. That was good. That was different. I
2: I don't even know how you make it through something like that. Either. The or- arms one. I mean, oh my gosh. I mean, and to think to do all those things. Like she had to throw herself down a flight of stairs. The other girl had to dresser wounds with no arms i mean that's
0: crazy yeah i think the mary vincent one is scary because you're like oh shit her arms are chopped up you know her legs were chopped off her arm or you know like the whole thing and then she's 15 years old and she did this all by herself and she survived to tell the story but ellen halbert it is every woman's biggest fear since we were born to get out of the shower and see someone standing there. That is a huge fear. Um, And I think that that makes that story a little bit more scarier than Mary Vincent's because it's more realistic. The guy was in her attic for two days like mm-hmm. how chills and then the ninja uniform i mean i i would have laughed too i would have been like oh, okay cameron you know like <laughs> like thinking it's your husband or something And your husband just happened to be golfing that day
1: all uh, of that for six hundred dollars yes. yeah some wedding rings and some wedding rings
0: so two crazy stories both of them scare me shitless can't imagine not having arms i probably would have just laid in the ravine i would have been like that's it yeah, I'm, I'm nubs, go ahead and just Jesus take me. But
2: it's weird how your brain processes adrenaline. I just, I would think I would just lay down and decide that that was over.
0: But also, can you like, can we talk about the fact when Mary Vincent was walking on the road and two cars passed her, and the second car picked her up. The first car that was the convertible of the two guys where they saw her and just took off. Obviously, to this day. They have to have so much guilt in their hands. Fortunately, she survived. But could you imagine driving on a street and seeing a no-armed, naked, 15-year-old, like bloody head, everything, just walking mm-hmm. in the middle of the street?
1: Oh, it's like worse than when those clowns were terrorizing the streets. I would drive. I'd probably drive away. Yeah. I'd call, I'd call the cops as I was driving away. I would too. Yeah. I would too. Yeah. I don't know if I... I don't know. Cause like,
0: what, does she have a weapon? You know, like you don't, I mean, she's mm-hmm. naked, so I don't know where it would be, but still that is just a gruesome sight and kudos to those honeymooners who were like, we're yeah. lost. Oh my God. What is this? Let's help her. Let me just say that that is a dream scenario for a honeymoon. Is that bad to say? Is that bad to say to be oh, a it, of it? <laughs> like you're on your honeymoon and then this shit happens just like right in the middle of it where you're like, Oh, we found a girl, helped her survive, because she probably would it's not have survived. It, it's crazy.
2: What's also interesting is the guy really thought that she was going to die. That said, by the way, my description is I am so attractive. I'm whatever he said, part Asian. part What did he say?
0: Half white, half black, and I'm a beautiful okay. man.
2: Yeah, half black, half white, and I'm a beautiful man. And then wrote the check to himself. So it's like, thank you for your description
0: and your name. That's great. <laughs> So anyways, all right, ladies, are you guys ready for some overtime?
1: I got, I got a good one. A juicy one. Kylie, start us off. So on January 5th, around midnight in good old Tulsa, Oklahoma, um, some parents woke up to their 12 year old daughter waking up. She woke them up and told them that she had just stabbed her either eight or nine year old brother. I saw a report saying different ages. We have no idea why she just stabbed her little brother to death. She's currently being held in a family center, um, has not been charged with anything because get this, Oklahoma has a new law that says people or children 12 and under can't be incarcerated unless all alternatives have been exhausted. And even if like the child is like sentenced to incarceration, it has to be reviewed by a judge every 30 days. And only children 13 and up can be charged as adults. So weird case to begin with, but now Oklahoma has no idea what to do with this child. How old was she? She's 12.
0: So she's 12 and she stabbed her eight or nine year old brother. And is he dead?
1: Yeah. He died. I think in surgery that night. Wow. Imagine the parents. Like, what do you do?
0: Is it the parents fault in this case? You know, cause like knives are in homes, you know, if it was a gun, that's different, but yeah. All right. They- wow. That's really sad.
1: Mm-hmm. There's not much else information again, cause it's a 12 year old, but we'll keep an eye on that one. Holly, you want to go next? Sure. Okay. So
2: this happened in Texas And it was a 31-year-old FedEx driver who was first arrested on suspicion of murder and kidnapping after a missing seven-year-old girl was found dead two days after she disappeared. Her name was Athena Strand, and I guess she was just kidnapped straight from her home by the driver. And they found him after receiving a tip that the FedEx driver made a delivery at Athena's home not long before she went missing. And investigators concluded that Tanner Horner allegedly kidnapped and killed her and believes that he only kept her alive within an hour or so from the time that she was kidnapped. He has reportedly confessed to abducting and killing her. Um, They have digital evidence and interviews corroborating the arrest. And he led authorities to her body. She was transported to the medical examiner's office apparently the driver did not know athena or the family so i guess it was just a random
0: random attack so very sad i feel like she was probably like outside playing and he just like scooped her up and she's so pretty if you guys go look up we'll go look her up she's so such a cute kid and that's so that's terrifying
2: very terrifying i mean she's old enough to be like playing by herself and you just Mm -hmm. think you're safe in your yard a freaking fedex driver like Ugh, it's terrible. All
0: right. Well, I will finish this off today. So my story um, is more so the, the ending of a story. Okay. So a Texas former cop was executed yesterday. He originally was charged with the crime of hiring two people to kill his wife uh, while they were doing a custody battle about 30 years ago. So I'm going to read a little suburb from a article that I found. A former suburban Houston police officer was executed Tuesday, January 10th, for hiring two people to kill his estranged wife nearly 30 years ago amid a contentious divorce and custody battle. Robert Frata, 65 years old, received lethal injection at the state penitentiary in Huntsville for the November 1994 fatal shooting of his wife, Farah. He was pronounced dead last night. It took 24 minutes for him to pass away but he had no final statement. He had someone praying over him while he went. But prosecutors say that this man, Robert Frada, organized the murder for hire plot in which a middleman hired a shooter and the wife was, was 33 years old at the time, was shot twice in the head in her garage in the Houston suburbs. Robert was a police officer for Missouri City and for about fifteen years, claimed that he was innocent. The punishment was delayed for a little bit more than an hour yesterday oh. because obviously they were having u s Supreme courts trying to overturn his lethal injection, which happens with a lot of death penalty cases. but they weren't able to, and he eventually was put to sleep. but he the the really crappy thing about this story, first of all, it took thirty years to to um execute this man, but he hired two people to kill his wife. She was divorcing him while the entire few months leading up to his wife actually being murdered, he told everyone that he was planning on killing his wife. So there were multiple people that ended up getting arrested in this case for not like alerting the authorities to what was going on. And that included a lot of people in the police department itself. So people knew that this man was either going to kill his wife or get somebody to kill her for him for months leading up to the death. And then the death happened. So it's a very sad story if you go back and actually like dig into it and listen to it because his wife was trying to just get out of an abusive relationship. And this is what happened. So super sad. All right. Well, let me wrap this up today. Thank you, everybody, for joining this week's episode of Over My Dead Pod. This is your host, Kate Carter, signing out. Bye, ladies. Goodbye. Bye. And with that, thanks for tuning in to another episode of Over My Dead Pod. Be sure to subscribe, leave a review wherever you're listening to this. If you want even more information about the cases we have talked about, be sure to check us out on our website, overmydeadpod.com. Thank you. <music>